This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. 25th of May 2005, Istanbul, a date, a city that resonates with Reds fans the world over. Gerard Smisa Alonso, six minutes which sent Liverpool from the precipice to the peak. After 20 years in the European wilderness, Rafa Benitez guided the Reds back to the summit. Welcome to the road to Istanbul as we recount the most famous of Liverpool triumphs here on the Blood Red channel. I'm Guy Clark and alongside me, as he has been throughout our stops off in Monaco, Acarunya, Leverkusen and London, is our very own Dan K. Dan, we're at the final. I can't believe it. How are you? I'm all right. It's uh, it's hard to believe it's nine months since we started this, let alone 15 years since Istanbul itself actually happened. But I think it was one of those occasions that even at the time, you just knew this is something we're going to be talking about and thinking about and waxing lyrical about when we're old and grey or, or older and greyer, as I should say. <laughs> yeah, perhaps didn't know we were going to be doing a podcast series on it, given podcasts very much yeah. in their infancy at that stage. But here we are. We've we've obviously we started from the group stage, but of course Liverpool started in the qualifying rounds against Graz AK in Austria and. Well, I mean, as we've recounted and those who who perhaps haven't been with us all the way through, if you want to go back through the Blood Red channel and and check out the road to Istanbul the full way through, it really has been a rollercoaster of a journey. The underdog really fighting against the bigger, more lucrative giants, perhaps all the way through this run. Liverpool, a historic name in European competition, but perhaps worth the context of, as I said right at the beginning there, this 20 years after, of course, Liverpool's last ventures into a, a European Cup final. Well, that's right. And that was really the kind of like the start of my football watching career. 1984 to 85 was the first season that I was going to matches. I turned eight, eight years old, just two days before the 85 final against Juventus, which obviously had was a was a, a horrifying memory and a horrifying experience. You know, I, I was old enough to have some sense of, of, of what was going on. And um yeah, well, I remember the, you know, the 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 six years of, of, of in the wilderness of European football very very vividly, and when we came back in in '91, you know, it, it it felt like a big deal, but it felt we had a, a very long way to catch up. It was ten years after that before Liverpool at least made made another uh, a European final in in the, in the UEFA Cup against against Dortmund, uh, sorry against Alaves in Dortmund on the tra- uh, for the travel year, and. Um, but it, it, maybe it was kind of symptomatic of Liverpool's journey in those 20 years. That it, it was real peaks and troughs. I think in 2001, when, when we beat Barcelona in the semi-finals, won the trophy, qualified for the Champions League, I think we all thought, well, you know, now we're on track again. The following season in 2002, Liverpool got to the quarter-finals and we already had our eyes on the final at Hampden Park and a prospective semi-final against Manchester United. But that went awry. And then within 18 months, all of a sudden, Liverpool seemed to be on that downward trajectory. And by the summer of 2004, Gerard Hule was gone and this relatively unknown Spaniard, Rafa Benitez, came in. But I think even the, even the most optimistic of Liverpool fans could not possibly have even dreamt that nine months after Rafa took charge, we would be travelling to Turkey to take part in the biggest showpiece in European football. And it felt a bit like a dream at the time. And, and to some extent, it still feels a bit like a dream now. There's moments when you have to think, you know, pinch yourself and go, did that really happen? 
but it did, you know, and and we'll we'll be luxuriating in it. I think for the for the rest of time, it, no matter how many victories Liverpool have had before or since, this one will stand in its own right as one of the great sporting fightbacks and achievements. And that's why we often see it referenced in general terms, not just by Liverpool fans, as one of the uh, as one of the kind of emblematic things about the idea of never giving up, which obviously was very relevant last year with Mo Salah and, and his T-shirt against Barcelona. Yeah, well, through the course of the series, we've been joined by a number of people who, who played their part or were there documenting the journey themselves. Of course, we heard from Chris Kirkland and, and Stephen Warnock fairly early on through the group phase. We also were joined by Clive Tilsley, of course, for looking back on that home leg against the Juventus. And coming up here in, in our edition for the final the halftime team talk is such a crucial thing and we're going to hear from one of the, the main players in all of that, the former head physio at Liverpool, Dave Galley. So do stick with us to hear Dave's thoughts on exactly what went on in that dressing room at halftime. It is it is fascinating stuff. But before we get to halftime, before we even get to the match starting itself, Dan, just wanted to ask you your thoughts because three or just over three weeks on from that pulsating semi-final at Anfield with Chelsea Liverpool had got to this final the league campaign had finished of course finished fifth in the Champions League uh, in the Premier League so weren't assured of qualification for the following season's Champions League it was going into this game that actually all of a sudden this season which had been a real marathon under Rafael Benitez all of a sudden came down to, to just one game well, that's right, and there was you know there was various kind of narratives, kind of leading into that. Um, obviously, you know the the having something tangible to show for it, having had this amazing run, having knocked out two of the best teams in Europe, in Juventus and Chelsea. I think I think it's worth pointing out as well. You know, the part of the whole sh- sheen of the event was the fact that Liverpool were playing AC Milan, uh, which is incredible to consider really that with two of the most successful clubs in the history of European football but they'd never met in a competitive fixture before this match. Now, I'm of an era when I always kind of, I always liked Italian football, but I always had a special soft spot for AC Milan because of that great side they had with the three Dutchmen, Hullet, Van Basten and Rijkaard. So, I mean, the, the night after we beat Chelsea, the other semi-final between AC Milan and PSV was taking place. And I do remember, I think Milan were tuned up from the home leg. And I do remember some Reds in the build-up said, oh, no, I hope PSV turned it around. Yeah, we've We've got a better chance of winning against them in Istanbul. But for me, I was like, no, I want to play Milan. You know, we, we've just beaten Chelsea. We've just beaten Juventus. Why should we? We, we don't need to be frightened with anyone. For me, football is, it, it's not just about the lads kicking the ball. It's about the spectacle. It's about the occasion. And I just thought Liverpool v AC Milan feels like a proper cup final. Um, you know, the, the excitement going into it was unparalleled. It, it was my first European final. I've been unable to go to Dortmund four years before because it was right in the middle of my university finals. At one point, to be honest, I, I wasn't sure. As soon as we beat Chelsea, I was like, I'm going. I'm, I'm definitely going. And then my late father took took a, a ill at the time and was in hospital for a week or two before. And at one point, having booked my trip, I was kind of thinking, will I actually even be able to go now? But thankfully, he kind of rallied around and, and I did go. Um, and we had a, a cracking little trip booked with... Um, it was uh, one of these package trips, two two nights in a hotel right on the banks of the Bosphorus, uh, with 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 uh, obviously with, with your flights and everything thrown in. There was a good firm of about six or seven of us travelling, and one of those lovely little quirks of fate, as as we so we were due to be flying out, I think about six o'clock on the Tuesday morning, the day before the game, and 
there was some, obviously, there was a, a mass exodus. Various estimates about how many Reds travelled, 30, 40, 50,000. I think, yeah, the latter probably sounds realistic. And there was trouble to do with the flights. So basically, on the, going to work on the Monday, and I remember a load of us getting a text off the travel firm going, uh, your flight's been moved forward, so we want you to get to the airport at 1am Tuesday morning. So we were already thinking, right, well, we'll, we'll go out for a few beers Monday night, and then it'll help us sleep to be up early. But once we found out that, it was a case of, right, well, we might as well just go straight home after work, get our bags, and then go to the pub. And, and Because there's no point going to bed now, is there? So, and, and when we got to the airport, we're queuing up to, you know, to get boarding passes or whatever. I'm standing in the queue behind me with the two fellas who sit behind me in my, in my season ticket seats. We, I knew they were going, but I had no idea they'd booked on the same trip. And it was just one of those little moments where you kind of thought, yeah, it's going to be a good little trip. This. I've got another one about the morning. They get a similar type of story to tell you about the morning of the game. So remind me when we get to that bit. Yeah, no, just, I, I, well, the next place I was going to go was you, you getting out to Istanbul and the atmosphere. We saw it last summer, of course, in Madrid. Liverpool fans just absolutely, just leaving Liverpool behind in terms of the city, making sure they're in Madrid. I mean, AC Milan, you've already said, one of the, the rich sides of, of uh, European tradition and history. Yet, even when you get to Istanbul, perhaps something unique to, to English football supporters, unique to certainly Liverpool supporters, that no matter if you're going to get a ticket to that game, you've got to be there. You've got to be part of the atmosphere because that is part of being Liverpool Football Club, dare I say. Well, I think that's very fair, Guy. And it, it, it's amazing when you think of it, when you think of the trials and tribulations people have had over tickets in the recent finals, particularly Athens two years later, when tickets were a real scramble and, and a bit of a nightmare for a lot of people. The irony about Istanbul is that I don't know anybody that wanted the tickets that couldn't get one. In actual fact, one of my friends had a spare, travelled with it and couldn't get rid of it. And then and, and, and ended up and ended up bringing a, you know, a complete un, un, unused ticket home, which is probably probably worth a few bob on eBay now. Um, and it, it's amazing to think about when, you know, you mentioned Madrid and Kiev and everything. And each, listen, a European Cup final is such a special occasion. You'll never, ever get sick of it, even if you're in it every year. But in 2005, this was a brand new experience for a whole new generation. Liverpool had not been in a European Cup final for 20 years. And I, I do remember at the time being amazed that, A, that no one had snapped this ticket up before we travelled, and particularly when we were out there, that, that, he, that he wasn't able to punt it on. Um, but it, it did feel like everywhere you looked was Liverpool supporters. Um, I, remember, I remember the chats some of us were having on the... Uh, I remember us having a fantastic lunch on the Wednesday lunchtime in, in the Sultan Ahmet district, which is just be, which is on the Asian side of, of Istanbul. That, I mean, that was one of the really appealing aspects as well. You know, Istanbul... The gateway between east and west. The gateway between east and west. You know, the, half the half the city in Europe, half the city in Asia, and it's a it's a, a timeless memory for me. Really, a whole load of us sitting around a big table outside at this bar and uh, on this, this little dragon salt armor. They have the Beatles on permanent loop. A beautiful sunny day. A fabulous, lovely meal of you know a little bit of fish, a little bit of meat, a little bit of rice, a little bit of potatoes. Just the perfect meal. The perfect uh, scenario. Perfect setting, but also as well that feeling that we're going to watch our team in the European Cup final tonight, and the sense of anticipation and excitement was untold. It did early, earlier that morning, so we we, did, we 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 got there like Tuesday lunchtime. I had a, had a couple of a couple of drinks and a bite to eat when we arrived, 
went home, went back to the hotel and had a kind of a tactical nap. <clears throat> and the Tuesday night, <clears throat> a lot of people have said this, not necessarily just for this final, but it's often the case of it. Sometimes the best night, the best sing songs, the best bevy, is the night before the game, the night of the game. And, and even though, even when you win, you're so physically and mentally drained from the match that it doesn't have quite the same input. Whereas the night before, anything is possible. Your dreams are all laid out in front of you. And I remember we, we finished up about four or five o'clock in the morning. In, in a, I remember walk, we got ourselves a kebab from somewhere and walking back to the hotel. And obviously, it's a, it's a very strong Asian company, uh, country, uh, Turkey and Istanbul. And they, everywhere you look, you see these minarets, which are the little towers leading out of the various um, temp, you know, mosques and prayer houses that they have. And they, they have been, what this, what's called the call to prayer, which happens a few times a day. But that was the, the morning one was happening about 5 a.m. just as we were walking in. There is a great apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true, but I'd like to believe it is. That supposedly at, well, in the Istanbul final, a scouser got inside one of them. And instead of singing the, you know, whatever music they play, started going da, 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 for Ring of Fire. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I'd like to believe it's true. But just, just finally, so got a couple of hours sleep, woke up, this is the morning of the game. Below our, our hotel was like a little supermarket or whatever. So I remember just nipping down to get a bottle of water and a paper or whatever. And standing in the queue at the till, I noticed that the fellow just getting served had this really nice T-shirt on that was that just said, you know, the, the club badges, Liverpool v Milan, the day Champions League final. And I remember just saying to him, oh, boss T-shirt, that mate, where'd you get it? And he goes, hang on there one sec. Nips out, comes back in and just gave me one. We still had a stash of them. And he wouldn't take any money, he wouldn't take anything for it. He just said, you know, you, listen, you, you enjoy that, you wear it and sing your head off tonight. And I just remember thinking, yeah, we're going to win tonight, aren't we? And that's how it played out. Yeah, it certainly did. So, well, it's match day. The game comes around. Did you sort of mentioning there Wednesday evening as it as it were when Champions League finals used to be midweek affairs, of course. Now, now very much a, a weekend thing. Liverpool going into the match. Then they're they're against AC Milan, albeit not the the might of mightiest AC Milan sides that you mentioned, of course, from the 80s. But mm. they are a star-studded side. They've got names such as Kaka, Shevchenko, Maldini, Nesta. I could keep going. You, you know the names that are within that squad. The Liverpool team news comes in, and I have to say, even at that stage, it, it was somewhat of a, a surprise. Fair to say? Huge surprise. I mean, I, I think we have to mention the journey to the stadium. We're all basically advised to get on a load of little rickety green buses via Taxim Square because it, the, the stadium, the Athletic, was out in the middle of nowhere. So we, we get on these buses and it was it almost felt like an army going to war. We were driving through these not far off shanty towns, you know, real built up areas with real poverty and deprivation. And yet there were loads of kids running into the street and waving at us and waving flags. And and it was an incredible, incredible experience. I'll never forget that. I've heard a lot of people talking you know, the memories of that are almost as vivid as the match. The feeling that, you know, you're part of something here that's so significant. And But this stadium that had only been built a few years before, which obviously is where this year's final was supposed to be, and maybe will be later in the year. We reached a certain point where there was no way of getting, you know, the, 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 it was absolute traffic logjam. Probably maybe just about an hour till kickoff. And basically everyone, and basically everyone just got off the coaches and, and made their own way. And so we had to basically hike over this, wasteland with kind of goats and sheep and moon traces everywhere thankfully you know this space age 
stadium with its floodlights was shining in the distance and kind of drawing us near. Um, so, so we managed to get up to the stadium, and in actual fact, made perfect time. And I think I think I got into the ground, or got to the seat maybe fifteen twenty minutes before kickoff, <clears throat> which I think is about right for a final like that. You know, not not too late, not too early, and obviously. I think I, I did have a mobile phone then, but there was no social media or anything like that. Liverpool had a certain way of playing, you know, a, a, a system that had worked and that had got us to the final against all the odds that had beaten these great teams in front of us. And, you know, I, I love Rafa Benitez, but I don't think it's kind of saying anything out of turn to say he was a, a pragmatic and times quite conservative manager. And Liverpool's success in, the, in this run had by and large been built on having a rock-solid defence and being able to hit teams on the break. So when I got, so I had no idea of the team news until I got until I actually got some receipts. But obviously my mates were already there and heard the team over the tannoy. And when I heard that that Dietmar Haman was not playing and Harry Hewitt was playing instead, I was it felt like a, you know a, a kick in the stomach. I, I I I just couldn't fathom the logic behind it. What Rafa was thinking? Had he lost his mind? You know, you look back in it now, and you know having read all, everything that happened. It, much after the event, I've seen the I've seen the Liverpool echo for the day of the game, <clears throat> and I think there is a back page line on the on the echo saying "Kuehl set for shock start," but but those of us out there, or certainly me out in Turkey, had absolutely no idea of that. Now the night before the game, in the, in when all the press conferences are done, the the then Milan manager Carlo Ancelotti, I think had said something along the lines of, "We know how Liverpool will play; they'll be quite defensive." Blah blah blah. And I've often wondered, did Rafa almost take the bait there? And and that and the, is that one of the reasons why he put Kuehl in, thinking kind of like, well, I'll I'll show you who's defensive. <clears throat> but it, it it seemed like a crazy decision, and <clears throat> the way the first half panned out, I think you know that's that's the way it proved to be because <clears throat> Haman was an outstanding defensive midfield player, great shielder for the back four, and for the first forty-five minutes, certainly, Kaka ran him off. And yeah, we went in three 0 down, and, and to some degree, it could have been worse. Yeah, no, certainly, and going in three 0 down, but even from the start, within the first minute, the quickest goal in Champions League final history. Paolo Maldini, of course, the AC Milan skipper, turning the ball in, and I suppose that euphoria and, as you said, the days leading up to the game, the dreams that you have, all of a sudden, knowing mm. the almighty task it takes within a European Cup final to come from a goal behind, all of a sudden, the balloon must have felt as though it was popping, although that certain feeling was to come later in the half. Yeah, <clears throat> well, it was... <clears throat> the game, obviously, there's all the pageantry and everything before the start, singing Ever Walk Alone, all the little dances on the pitch. And then just as the game started, literally as the game kicks off, so I was in like a, a middle tier, but well, a lowish tier, but towards the back. On the on the side, kind of parallel to the corner flag, where Shevchenko, where Dudek made the save from Shevchenko. So in other words, at the other end from where all the goals are scored. And just as the game kicked off, somebody put a somebody unveiled a flag from the upper tier that basically blocked our view of the goal that Liverpool were defending. So I'd seen that AC Milan had a free kick on the right-hand side, but I couldn't see the goal. And, and I can see, um, I think, was it Kaka played the ball in? And I, me- I remember seeing, you know, no one, the, the, the flag was pulled up very shortly afterwards. But I remember seeing the ball played in and thinking, well, I can't see what's going to happen here. So I'll, I'll just look at the Milan fans. And as long as they don't get up and cheer, then I know that we're all right. And of course, then I did see them get up and cheer. And I was like, crikey, 1-0 down after 
not even a minute. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I know I've just said then that in some ways Liverpool could have gone in four or five behind a hard time, and that is true. By the same token, having watched the game back on a number of occasions uh, over the last 15 years, as you might imagine, Liverpool did actually respond quite well initially. I think within you know five minutes, Risa had an absolute howitzer of a shot block. Hippier had a, Hippier had had a, a header saved. <clears throat> Milan always looked very dangerous. I think that's why a lot of people kind of <clears throat> make the point that you know Liverpool were getting torn apart first half, and that's right. But it wasn't like we weren't without our own threat as well. <clears throat> and that's why the second goal particularly and the third were such killers because <clears throat> the second goal, it just felt like we were starting to get a bit of a, um, a foothold in the game. Um, it was around about the half hour mark and it seemed to be reaching a, put- a crescendo just at the point when Garcia goes into the box, Alessandro Nesta falls, the ball kind of clips his, his elbow a little bit. We all shout for a penalty. It would have been a bit harsh, but we'd all have taken it. But then it was one of those kind of sliding doors moment when the penalty isn't given. They literally go down the other end of the field and make it 2-0. And you think, crikey, well, that's we've all seen games like that where 1-1 can become 2-0 instantly or vice versa. And straight away you think, we've done all right here. And now almost through no fault of our own, we're 2-0 down. And it's a, at that point, it's, it's, it's a case of, well, just try and get into half-time with no further damage done. And then two or three minutes before the break, Kaka does this sublime turn away from Gerrard, arcs this perfect ball beyond Carragher into the path of Crespo, who produces this beautiful little dinked finish over Dudek. And <clears throat> there was a million books, plays... TV, TV documentaries and whatever done afterwards. I do remember Sky did a very good one called One Night in May and Brian Reed, former Echo writer, now still writes very well for the, the Mirror. He said, he described that the Crespo, the second Crespo goal was like watching a horror movie unfold before your eyes. And I thought that was, that was a, you know, a, a, that's exactly how I felt. And the, the, the whistle blew, 3-0 down at half time. I remember um you know, walking downstairs to try and get a bit of air, find somebody to drink. You know, I, I think we had arranged to meet a couple of other mates who wasn't sitting with her at a certain point. I wouldn't say that the thought of leaving crossed my mind a lot, primarily because we were in the middle of nowhere and there was nowhere really to go. It would, I think, you know, it, and I, even if it had been in, in a fine, in like, for example, somewhere like Kiev, but it wasn't the middle of the town centre, I still don't think having the journey that, we, that we'd been on, I would have walked out on them. But I do remember being in no desperate hurry to get back to my seat either. And, and it took quite a long time to find something to, something to drink. You know, the facilities were, were not tremendous. Um, and so when I finally kind of wended, wended my way back up to where I thought my seat was, the second half had already begun. So I get to where I, where I thought the seat was, <clears throat> and it turns out I was in the wrong block. And just as I turned, just as I was about to turn to walk into the next block, I just saw John Arnarisa. Um, about to play the ball in for the left. So I thought, oh, I'll just watch this cross. And the cross comes in and Steven Gerrard heads it in. And I remember just putting my arm up in the air, kind of a bit glumly, almost fatalistic, going, hey, well, we've got one. And some lad just grabbed me and goes, come on, lad, back in this, we can do this. And I was like, yeah, well, I hope so. But I didn't really believe him, to be honest. So I, I walked into the next block, which is where you know, which is where I was supposed to be, where my, mate, where my mates were. And I literally just got to my, my proper seats just as Smeetcher 
slammed the second in through D- through Dude. And the drink went everywhere and everyone was grabbing each other. And all of a sudden then, you just knew, wow, we are back in this now. 3-2 all of a sudden. It's massively game on. One of, one of my favourite bits of watching <coughs> watching it back is that there's, there's a shot, there's a great bit of camera work, there's a shot of the Milan bench with uh, Ancelotti. Uh, I want to say Maro Tassotti might have been one of his number two, but yeah, with, with his coaching staff there. And so the shot starts The shot starts out with Ancelotti in the foreground and you can see the Liverpool end of the background kind of slightly blurry. And then it, the focus changes away from Ancelotti to the Liverpool end. And, and our end is singing, we shall not be moved. Now, we're still 3-2 down at this point. So to some, it might seem a bit daft. Why, what do you mean you can't be moved? If you don't score again, you've lost. But I think the vast majority of all the Liverpool supporters in the ground at the time, and probably many, many more watching at home in Liverpool and around the world, Knew even at three-two, the momentum had shifted. We were on the we were on the the march again now, and obviously within a couple of minutes, we weren't behind anymore. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. My recollection of the halftime was was coming in it being deadly quiet, uh, and the first two voices you hear are Jamie Carragher and Stephen Gerrard talking to each other, and then it gets a bit more. Not heated, but a bit louder. A few more people join in, and then Rafa comes in and says his piece. But the the one thing I can remember was Jamie saying, "We've got to do it for them." Listened at them, and you could just hear the crowd outside. I've got all goose pimples now. You can hear the the crowd outside singing, "You'll never walk alone." And it's uh, it was an amazing, amazing second half. That halftime team talk is is something that's fabled now it's something that a lot of people have asked the questions and spoken about it wanted to to ask you about it because of course we know the incident of Jimmy Traore was going to be substituted Steve Finnan then had this injury and I suppose you're the man who has to break it to Rafa whilst his mind scrambled trying to work out the tactical plan Gaffer Steve Finnan can't continue yeah yeah it was interesting (laughs) Obviously, we came in at half-time. The place was just dead. It was very quiet for probably only a couple of minutes, but it seemed like about 30, 40 minutes. Um, Steve then said his thigh was sore, so we would get him on the table, have a look, assess him. Um, and obviously, in this time, people are starting to talk and Rafa's saying his bits. Sends Jimmy into the shower. He was going to make the, the change. I don't know if Jimmy actually got into the shower or if he was just getting ready to go in the shower. Um and, and it was it was quite obvious Steve wasn't going to be able to finish the game in the condition he was in. So I, I don't think he's spoke to me since, by the way, as well. But, uh, I just got to speak to Rafa. I said, look, he's, he's, he's got a problem with his thigh. He's not going to be able to finish the 90 minutes. It's your decision if you want to change him or not. But he's, he won't last the 90 minutes. So he said, right, we'll change it. Get Jimmy back out of the showers. Did your man, you're going on. Uh, and luckily, it, it, it all worked, apart from Steve. But he got a winner's medal out of it, so he can't be too unhappy. No, certainly not. And I just wonder, how difficult is that? You you obviously, through the course of your career, plenty of times would have offered that advice to managers, and I, I'm sure a few of them would have barked back at you and said, you stick to your job, I'll do mine, I'll put the player back out if I want to. But how difficult in that pressure environment is it to have to go up to the manager and say, look, I, I know you've got this plan, but you're going to have to consider this? I think you've got to use your experience and, and things that you've you've done in the past, how you've dealt with it, how you put it over to the manager. 
how you put it over to the player as well. But it's, it's, it's just using your experience. It's You're there to do a job uh, and you've got to take your your professional head and your personal head completely aside and just make a professional decision for the benefit of the whole team, not just for one player. Um, and luckily, Rafa was very, very good uh, at understanding things like that. And I've actually I've seen him since when he was up at Newcastle. I've gone up to a few games and he still talks about it very, very fondly. And he said, if you hadn't told me that, I wouldn't have put Didi on. We may not have won it. So he's, you know, he's, he's a sensible sensible manager in that way. So he, he took it in the right way. But it's just experience, I think. So you're telling us you're the man to thank for the, the miracle of Istanbul? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no. <laughs> not, not if you had Steve Finnan, no. Well, the voice and thoughts there, former Liverpool FC head physio Dave Galley, the man who as he explains, made the call with Rafael Benitez or had to let Rafael Benitez know, in fact, Dan, that Steve Finnan couldn't continue at half-time. The role Steven Gerrard and Jamie Carragher played as the, the side went into that dressing room. You, you said there before, just as half-time came around, you didn't believe. I don't think the players believe. In fact, Jamie Carragher's come out a number of times, of course, hasn't he, and, and said that nobody really believed. But the fans there at half-time singing You'll Never Walk Alone. You said yourself, I imagine it really was a split. Those who wanted to still believe somehow that this was possible and others who were just dumbfounded by what was going on. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we, we all would have wanted to believe, but it's whether people had, had it within them to do so. Um, because it was that part of the frustration was we hadn't played that badly. It wasn't like we'd you know, had a kick of the ball or not got in their half. We, you know, it could have been 3-3. And it also could have been six nil. Yeah, that it, it was a mad forty-five minutes of football, and it, it was very interesting to hear Dave talking there about how you know the chaos within that dressing room. I think we've heard various accounts of you know the just how confusing the whole situation was. With one change going to be made, and then they realised Finnan's in, injured, and he got to improvise his team selection, and you know, and finally he was getting him out on the pitch because you know one of the extraordinary things about you know the, the first half. So he's taken this big leap of faith to start Kewell ahead of a man. But when Kewell breaks down after 20 minutes and Liverpool are already a goal behind, he still doesn't bring a man on. He brings Sweetser on then. <clears throat> now, one of my, you know, a, a minor regret is that I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about the you'll never walk alone at half-time. And in that same documentary I mentioned just before, Kelly Dalgleish, Kenny's daughter, describe, you know, and it's one of those kind of songs you never walk alone, it's multi-purpose. It can be sung in a million different ways for a million different reasons. But she, the way she described it in, on this particular occasion, I thought was beautiful when she said it was almost like a prayer. Now, I I didn't hear it at all. You know, and I was in the ground at that end, but I'd kind of gone out to the back of the stand and was talking to people and whatever. I just didn't notice it, whatever. But it, but it's interesting that, you know, from what Dave says there, and other players have alluded to this as well, they did hear it in the dressing room. <clears throat> they did know that they had to go out there and at least put on some kind of, a show of pride for the for the for the for the fans who'd spent all you know not just the 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 the, emo, the, the financial investment the, but the emotional investment over the course of the season who'd lived and dreamed lived all these hopes and dreams of getting to the final and performing well and winning the cup. So, getting out getting out into the second half and at least giving a good showing, I think was they were playing for pride as much as anything else. But at the same time. We had a force of nature as our captain in Stephen Gerrard, um, and 
even in the back, you know, we'd already performed a, a miracle even to get to the group stages by getting past Olympiacos. And I suppose once that first goal went in, if you've been watching football long enough, you, one of the reasons we love it all so much is that it is unpredictable. We might all think we've got an, an educated guess about how things might go, but you never know 100% which way it's going to go. And it was just extraordinary to see how how quickly things were, how things quickly were able to change and how all of a sudden that same kind of fear that you could see at times in our players when Milan were cutting through them at will, all of a sudden the likes of Gattuso, Yap Stam, these, these quaffered, immaculate Milan Italian superstars, all of a sudden were human because they had 11 red shirts and... 50, you know, 40,000 lunatics, all of a sudden with belief coursing through their veins, and you know, if, if ever, if ever, kind of like a move showed that in kind of in footballing form, I'd say it would be the move that led to the equaliser, which was a great piece of football that I, I don't know, I often don't think really gets the kind of credit it deserves. Jamie Carragher brings the ball forward from the from the back, plays this this really perceptive slide rule pass into the kind of inside right channel into Milan Barros, who's making kind of diagonal left-to-right run. And Barros is able to be aware of Gerard making a, a surging run behind him and just pops this clever little back heel, almost like a little pop pass. There wasn't much weight on it, but just perfectly into the path of Gerard, who comes charging onto it. Gattuso body, Rina Gattuso body checks him, and it's an absolute nailed-on penalty. Obviously, Gattuso is trying to swear blind that Gerard's taking a dive, but the moment when... It, 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 the moment when it when he ran through, and, and as soon as he, he goes down, it's almost like a cricketer appearing for LBW when you know you, you know you've got him. Our end, everyone was in each other's arms before we'd even seen the referee blow for the spot. But then, of course, it's a case of well, who's going to take the kick? And you know, as someone who's played a bit of football, there can't have been too many more pressurised kicks in the ball than that. Uh, I don't remember Zabi Alonso taking many penalties for Liverpool. I mean. Even afterwards, I mean, you know, you've been every season at this point. But I, th- I think he deserves all the credit in the world because there was a long break. It must have been best part of two, two and a half, three minutes between the award of the penalty and him actually being able to strike it. And it wasn't a bad penalty, but it wasn't a great penalty. I mean, Dida was about six foot five, wasn't he? He plunges low to his right and gets a strike and gets a good hand to it. But Alonso, to his eternal credit and to our eternal gratitude, isn't... Is, is thinking on his feet, is on his toes and follows it up. And, and it's not an easy finish on his weaker left foot. With Dida, you know, the, the huge frame of Dida sprawled in front of him would have been quite easy for him to block the second shot. But he manages to get, you know, a, a little bit of elevation on it. And, you know, in my mind's eye, I'll never, ever, you know, and from quite a distance, you know, I'm at the other end of the field, really. But when I just see seen the ball just pop into the roof of the net and just that relief that, oh, my God, We've equalised. We, we, we spoke to Clive Tilsley, didn't we, for the for the ahead of the the Juventus quarterfinals? And I always remember his bit of commentary afterwards when it when he said something like Liverpool were three 0 down five minutes ago, and, and it's just a great little line that, that sums up the absolute ludicrous nature of what just had transpired in front of us. And people often, you know, people talk about you know, the emotion of occasions like these, and obviously it's it, it is emotion. There was. A lot, of, a lot of grown men cried that day. For me, the most emotional time was actually when we equalised. Not, you know, more, more than when we actually won or lifted the trophy because at 3-3, three, at three, three, I just remember thinking of all the people who'd been 
rooting for us, you know, all our friends and family. And obviously for me personally, because obviously of the, the family difficulties I've had at the time with my father not being well, all the people that have been that have been rooting for us, hoping we had a lovely time and that would have been so sad for us at 3-0, but now would be so happy for us at 3-3. And it, it was kind of almost a sense of no matter what happened, you know, don't get me wrong, if we'd lost it from that point, I still would have been devastated. But in that six minutes, because that, you know, that's, that's how quickly the three goals came within the space of six minutes. In that six minutes, I think we showed everything that the, that the club and the city of Liverpool stands for, of not letting yourself be beaten down when life's giving you a bad trot. Keep believing, keep going, and you might get, you might get your rewards. And, and maybe there was a little bit of schadenfreude in, it, in there as well, because <clears throat> at 3-0... I'm sure I wouldn't have been the only Liverpool fan, Liverpool fan that would have been thinking about the Everton supporters, the Man United supporters who'd said, you've, bl- you've, you've jammed your way there, you've got no right to be in that final, you're going to get your arses handed to you, you're going to get torn apart. And at 3-0, they'd have been, I, I was thinking, well, they've been proved right, haven't they? Whereas at 3-3, it was, it was just an extraordinary turn of events. No, and it was incredible that... Through the whole knockout stage, of course, Liverpool had only conceded three goals. Then six minutes before half-time, they were 1-0 down. Six minutes before the half-time interval, going 3-0 down, conceding two goals in the final six minutes of that first half. And then, as you say, well, those six magical minutes, as, as Dave Galley refers to as well, where Liverpool are able to come back and just turn the game on its head so wonderfully, so magically. And then, all of a sudden, you've gone from... Of course, Gerard pulling one goal back. Then Smisa, as you said before, gets to 3-2. People starting to actually think this could happen. Xabi Alonso bundles in the, the rebound. There's still then half an hour left of the game. How much of that do you remember, Dan, before we get to extra time? Because everyone talks about the Dudek save from Shevchenko, but probably forgets there was still half an hour to go after Alonso had equalised. Well, I think when we equalised, I remember thinking, well, surely we'll just go on and win it now. And I think within a minute or two, Risa has, you know, Risa hits one from the edge of the box, which Duda, uh, Dida kind of palms into the air. And you just thought, Milan have gone here. They've absolutely gone to pieces. We're going to win this 4-5, 6-3. But they did steady the ship. And I think within, you know, I've heard, I've heard stories from Milan, and, which, which aren't entirely without foundation, saying we'll never understand how we lost that because we played really well for 120. 1213 minutes out of 120 and I think really probably within 5-10 minutes of um, Liverpool getting on level terms the kind of the status I wouldn't say the status quo but the game had, had found an equilibrium it was different now because Liverpool you know, Milan now knew Liverpool could hurt them and from Liverpool our mindset had changed slightly because at 3-0 you've got nothing to lose have you? It's just a case of right well, let's just go for it you know what I mean it can't, it, it can't get any worse Whereas at three three, all of a sudden you have got something to lose, and I, I, I do. I think the only thing I really remember before the end of normal time, possibly 10, 15 minutes after the equaliser, Dudek had another little bit of a flap at the cross. Uh, I think Shevchenko turned it towards the internet, and, and Jimmy Traore kicked off the line, and I remember him kind of hitting the post like that in frustration and glaring at Dudek. Obviously, you see this on the TV footage afterwards, and Carragher kind of turns around and gives Dudek a volley. Afterwards, which shows that you know J- Jersey Dudek is a Liverpool legend, but you know he he had his he, he maybe a bit like Grobbler, he had his kind of little wobbly moments here and there. But um, I think there was at three three. Obviously, we wanted to win it properly, and you kind of knew whether you take a second to score a goal. But 
looking back with hindsight, I think maybe to some degree, maybe penalties was already on the cards because having the game having play, played out the way it did, I think there was there was a, a kind of real kind of fear factor came into it for both sides now. You know, Milan, all of a sudden Milan, whereas at halftime they were thinking about, well, it's another great victory for us. Glory, glory, hallelujah, AC Milan. Whereas all of a sudden now they're thinking this could be one of the most humiliating defeats in, in our in our history if, if we don't manage to see this through. And from our point of view, we're kind of thinking, God, imagine coming from 3-0 down and then losing anyway. So it, extra time really was continued in a similar vein. There weren't an awful lot of clear-cut chances. I think the one thing that really bears repeating is Steven Gerrard. You know, what a performance he gave. He, he essentially played three positions. You know, he started, started the match in centre-mid. Early in the second half, he did play further forward. And that's how he was able to obviously get a goal, get an assist, get Liverpool back into the game. And then one Milan brought on Serginho, a Brazilian left-winger, who I always had very, very high regard for, and even more so once he blazed the opening penalty of the shootout over the bar. Loved him even more after that. Um, he was an outstanding left-winger. So they put Gerard to right-back to kind of you know, to, to cover him. And I don't, you know, at this, Gerard would have been 24, 25 at this stage. We were talking right at the start of this about you know, the, the narratives of the season. And one thing I meant to mention then and didn't was, of course, Gerard's future was a whole big thing. We talked about it prior to Olympiacos. We talked about it prior to Chelsea. But even going into the final, and I think you know, the, Gerard and Carragher gave a big interview to Spine, the build up to it. And he was again asked explicitly about his future. You know, will you be here next season? And he didn't really, you know, he kept his cards fairly close to his chest. So another thing in the back of our minds was, you know, we've got to win because we can't let this once-in-a-lifetime footballer leave. <clears throat> and it says a lot about how Liverpool, I think, was so much in his blood and his soul that even though he knew that, well, it's almost like I've got an, a, get a, an excuse to leave if we don't win, he left everything, you know, blood, sweat and tears on that pitch. There was nothing he wasn't going to do to try and get Liverpool through to victory, but it looked like we got to extra time, and then all of a sudden, in the 117th minute, it was one of those time-stood-still moments. Um, and and it, this is the one kind of key moment of the match that I had a really good view of. As I say, all the goals were at the other end. <clears throat> but I was kind of like level with <clears throat> pretty much the goal line at that end, at the Liverpool end. <clears throat> the ball's played in from the left wing by Serginho. All of a sudden... Shevchenko's got a free header. And to be honest, it's not a great header. It's kind of straight at Dudek. But he doesn't make a particularly good job of it initially because he palms it pretty much straight back to Shevchenko. And at that moment, I remember just thinking, oh, well, we've lost. That's it. 4 3. It's over. Go home. And I've watched it back a million times. I've seen a million pictures of it from a million different angles. I've never seen a ball move on a trajectory like it did after it hit his arm. It defies physics, it defies logic. <clears throat> when you watch the when you watch the, the, the footage back, so yeah, the ball comes back to him, Sevchenko meets it with his with his laces and Dudek throws an arm up, it hits kind of his wrist and just rockets directly vertically upwards over the bar. And there's two great camera shots. One is from a camera behind the goal that focuses on Shevchenko. And he's just got this look on his face, almost turning around to go to his teammates, going, well, what do you want me to do? Something, something supernatural is happening here because 99 times out of 100, that ball goes in the net. Even if he hasn't hit it that well, it goes in off his wrist. 
it, it sh- and it, it shouldn't go as high as it did. The other shot is from the normal camera side, and you see Dudek just kind of nodding his head like that, going, "Yeah." And obviously, it came to light afterwards. He's a devout Catholic. It was one of those things where <clears throat> the Pope had died that year. Wales had run the Rugby Grand Slam. Deirdre Barlow got married in Corrie. There were all these little things that were coming into play that just made you think the stars are aligning. It's meant to be. It's faith. And I think if there was that war, I think that that moment <clears throat> destroyed Milan on the night. I say as well, and he's always been one of my absolute favourite players. I would have loved to have seen him in a Liverpool shirt. I actually think that moment destroyed Andrei Shevchenko as a player. I don't think he was ever the same player again. Obviously, he came he came to the Premier League a couple of years later and played for uh, for Chelsea. And he had, you know, he had scored a few goals, had a few moments, but I just don't think he ever had that same kind of. He, he just, he just seemed unstoppable before then, and I think it kind of, I think that moment broke his spirit a little bit. And every, every time I see that clip, I can't help feel a little bit sorry for him, but not so sorry that I'm not glad it didn't play out the way it did. No, of course he was, <clears throat> he was one of Europe's, if not Europe's, most potent number nine penalty box finisher at the time and as you said just just two years before it had been him who'd won the European Cup for AC Milan via a penalty shootout of course of which we we lead to now but before we get to that I want to go all the way back even to the beginning of the match and one thing as you were just saying there stars aligning and superstition and everything like that the moment I want to discuss is Reno Gattuso walking out onto the field of play and doing what you must never do in a cup final AC Milan, of course, wearing their white because as a club, they believe that's superstitious that they wear white for the finals because they do better in the white jerseys. Yet Reno Gattuso touched the trophy. You don't do that. No, he um, he, he did that on the time. And he had the saying goes, he had plenty of time. He repented his own leisure. I, I believe that um, Carragher made sure that the Liverpool, Liverpool players knew not to do that. Um What's so extraordinary about it is that you know it, it's not like you know if if if, if there was any team that you would expect to be more likely to do it, it would be Liverpool, who wouldn't have played in as many showpiece occasions like that. I, I don't know off the top of my head if Gattuso had played two years before at Old Trafford against Juventus, but he was a you know, very experienced player. Maybe that that just maybe gave a slight insight into kind of the Milan mindset that you know they they were in the European Cup final. This is what they did. They were here to win. They knew they were a better team than Liverpool. Maybe it was a little bit of arrogance, a bit of, a bit of complacency. I mean, Gattuso was that type of player, wasn't he? He was very brash. Um, but it, you know, it, it was certainly something that came back to haunt him, not just because you know he didn't get his hands on the trophy at the end of the night, but obviously he was involved in one of the key moments of the match when it was him that brought Gerard down for the penalty. And you know, in some ways, he was lucky to stay on the field. I mean, to some degree, I'm glad. I'm glad he did. I've all, I've always kind of felt it's. It's a bit like double jeopardy when a referee gives a penalty and a red card. Whether I'd be quite as um, laid back about it if, my, if Liverpool hadn't won, probably not. <laughs> but um, no, it was it's certainly something that came back to haunt him. And you know, it's, well, you know, thankfully Liverpool have been involved in what three more finals since then. But um, I don't think anybody's going to be. You know, I don't think anyone, anyone's going to be making that mistake again anytime soon. No, certainly not. Well, for the second time in three years, then the Champions League final to be decided on penalty kicks. Of course, AC Milan had actually been the side who had come out on top the previous time the the European Cup, the Champions League final had gone to a penalty shootout, as you mentioned before, beating Juventus at 
Old Trafford. They were to take first on this occasion. Serginho, as you say, would blaze it over. But the the man who, as you said, makes the save from Shevchenko right at the end of stoppage time, Jersey Dudek, is the real hero of the penalty shootout. And you, you mentioned, of course, before as well, Bruce Grobelar and shades of the, the 84 final against another Italian side, Roma. It all just boiled into this real sort of superstitious affair where things just aligned perfectly for the Reds. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the 84, the penalties in Rome, that, that really is my first footballing memory. It was two days after I turned seven. I could, you know, I could remember watching the match. I remember hiding behind the sofa when Steve Nichol stood up to take the first penalty. And then when he missed it, I thought, well, I may as well watch it now. And, and it all worked out for us. There's a great bit of footage, which everybody was watching at the time, and we've seen it back since we'll remember, where Carragher is basically saying to Dudek as they're preparing for the shootout, do a grovel out, do everything you can to put them off. And um, I think Dudek said afterwards, well, I, I knew about all that. I was going to do any, I was going to do that anyway. Carragher was just screaming at me like a lunatic. But but I love that because it shows that, you know, and remember, Jamie Carragher is a boy at Evertonian who, you know, grew up bleeding blue and white and by all accounts laughed his head off when Michael Thomas scored the winning goal for Arsenal in 89. But it just shows how much he dialed into the kind of the, the, the mentality and the history and, and the legend of the club. And uh, it, absolutely, dude, it was the hero for that saving for the, for the shootouts. So too as well with Didier Mann, um, because he, um, it turned out later he'd actually broken a bone in his foot in the, what, 75 minutes that he'd spent on the pitch. And he was the one that actually had to take Liverpool's first penalty, which was really crucial because Serginho's taken first and missed. But if, if a man doesn't score, and I think I'm right in saying possibly the only other penalty he'd taken for Liverpool prior to that was in the Worthington Cup shootout at Cardiff four years before, and he'd missed, but it was saved. So it took some stones to get up, you know, particularly if your foot's not right, to take the first kick in the shootout, which he did. And that had even more significance because of the next kick when Pirlo steps up and Jersey Dudak's almost on the almost on the six yard line by the time he saves it, but he does save it. And then all of a sudden once Cissé scores the second, it's two nil after after two kicks each. And you're like going, Is this really happening? We you know, we, we might be like ninety seconds away from lifting the trophy here. Um then things kind of stabilised a little bit. Kaka got Milan on the board. And Risa missed or had one saved by by um, Dida. So all of a sudden, it's you know our our advantage of two has been cut to one. And then the real pressure kick became Vladimir Smicher, with what proved to be his last kick of the ball for Liverpool. I mean, to be honest, I don't think I'm alone in thinking that his Liverpool career was largely done and dusted. He'd hardly played in in 2004 2005. That's one of the reasons why I was. I was staggered to see him come off the bench for Harry Kuehl after 20 minutes. Not just not just because the fact that I wanted a man on the pitch, but the kind of like, well, you know, with the racist respect, what, what's Fritcher going to do? He's, he's already played. He's already played with this team. But, but he, he took his goal superbly and he took a very, very cool penalty when it was, you know, if, if, if he hadn't have scored, all of a sudden Shevchenko could have drawn things level and it would have been essentially sudden death from then on. But, but Fritcher sent Dida the wrong way. Give it, kiss, or almost bit the badge off his shirt afterwards, and all of a sudden, then you knew that it's it's match point. You know, Shevchenko has to score to keep it going, and even if he does, 
Liverpool will have one kick to, to seal it, which we know now would have been Steven Gerrard. Now, the, um, I've got a, all the time in the world for John Aldridge um, because I, I think he's a great player and he's a great pundit and columnist for the Echo as well these days. But I think on his, I think it's on his radio commentary. He says something like, "Shevchenko coming up to take Milan's penalty. He looks really confident. He's a great player. You won't miss him." Now, having watched it back, he does not look one bit confident as he's striding forward to take it. He looks like he has got the weight of the absolute world on his shoulders. And as I said just before, I do think that save from Dudek had a big part to do with it. I, th- I think it ruined him. I, th- I just think it devastated him mentally. And you know, a fantastic player though he was. It was a woeful penalty. I don't know what it, I don't know if he was trying to do a Penenka, yeah. trying to do a Penenka. Mm. It, it, it was it was like a half arse Penenka, but he didn't even do it properly. And and Dudek almost had time to kind of dive the wrong way, stop, and then just palm it out. And there was there's almost like a split second of realization that that is it, isn't it? That is it. We've won. And then to be honest, the next five, ten, fifteen minutes, whatever, are a bit of a blur because your dreams have come true. You know it's. Through, you know, through the there were some really dark times, particularly in the nineties, the you know, the latter years under under Graham Souness. Uh, I think we may have mentioned on one of the earlier podcasts the night that Manchester United reached the final in ninety nine against Juventus. The same night Liverpool lost at home one 0 to Leicester in the league with a ninety first goal from ex Everton Cartorty and Marshall, who was about forty five at the time, and. You know, one of the one of the worst things about that night was it wasn't the fact that United were doing so well. It was the fact that we were so far away. And for years and years, I kind of thought, well, maybe we'll get our act together. Maybe we'll win the league one day. But we'll never win the European Cup again. That, that's that's long gone. So for that to, for it to become a reality and now, 15 years later, we've won the European Cup twice, but we still haven't got our hands on the flipping league. It's one of those, it's one of those ironies. But it was... Um, yeah, it was one of those moments that kind of seared into your mind's eye. And, you know, I hope it's many years off, but when I'm on my deathbed and I'm thinking of the greatest nights, the greatest moments, the times I was most happy, you know, that night and, and that, you know, the moment of triumph there will be will be right up there. And what a moment it was. We've, we've already spoken about Stephen Gerrard and his future on the pitch after the game. Says, how could I leave this? Of course, the summer was going to transpire that at one stage he was off and he did remain... Well, it just continued that that love affair for Steven Gerrard and Liverpool with him then reaffirming his commitment and desire to the club, remained with the club forever more. And Istanbul, I suppose, has so much to to play in that and, and so much more of what makes Liverpool the fabric of what they are now with, of course, as we saw last season, the comeback against Barcelona and all of that. Liverpool just don't know when they're beaten and Dan it's been great to to go back through this whole series and well we spent we spent we spent best part of an hour here just reminiscing about this game in particular we we've not mentioned a number of different themes that went on through the game I'm sure we could spend many more hours talking just about this game (laughs) yeah it was um you know as as Liverpool supporters we've been very blessed some might some might say spoiled I'd, I'd rather look at it as blessed with a lot of incredible moments you know inside and outside of a football ground but i i always remember the um the other you know slight regret i I didn't get home in time for the homecoming uh i mean it it was it was lovably ramshackle istanbul the organization was was a little bit higgledy piggledy in it it might not have been quite as if we'd have been playing someone like manchester united or Juventus, it might have been a different story out there but it was um coming home on the thursday i think 
our flight was delayed by about three or four hours. I know one of my mates was delayed by about nine or ten. And I remember seeing him and he was supposed to fly out before us and we left before him. And I remember seeing his face and it was almost as red as the Liverpool shirt he was wearing. So I, 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 I remember landing back at John Lennon Airport just as the homecoming was finishing, actually, and getting a lift back off someone and just listening to the last knockings of it on the radio. But I do remember ringing my grandfather. It was just to say, oh, you know, I'm home safely or whatever. And uh, he, he was an, an Evertonian, my grandfather. And, and even though it, it, the congratulations he gave were maybe slightly through gritted teeth, one thing he did say it about was, you know, what have I always told you in life about not giving up? And that, you know, I've always believed that, you know, sport is a metaphor for life. And one of the reasons why I think, it, you know, matches and experiences like this are so celebrated and so revered by not just Liverpool fans, but I think football fans and sports fans in general, is that it taps into a kind of, it, it taps into what the, what the essence of life is. You, you're not always going to get everything going your, your, your way. You are going to have to deal with adversity in tough times. But if you stick together, believe, stick with your mates, believe in yourself and give it your best shot, then you've always got a chance. And that's why, you know, for all Liverpool's incredible triumphs, I mean, there's, there's you know, old-time Liverpoolians twice my age who were in Rome, who went to St. Etienne and all the, you know, Inter Milan, all these great names that, that were before my era that still put Istanbul on the pedestal. Because there was nothing down for us. No one gave us a prayer. But if there's one thing our, our club and our city is renowned for, it's that we don't take it lying down. We'll always come back and have a go. And I think Istanbul is, is the prime example of that. Yeah, pure epitome of it, as you say there, Dan. Well, that rounds us off for the, the series on the road to Istanbul here on the Blood Red channel. Over the course of the next few days, we've plenty more reaction to this anniversary. Of course, 15 years on. Jimmy Triore speaking with our Liverpool correspondent, Paul Gorst, is to come for you as well. A special Blood Red podcast, again, looking back on the game and detailing it from the uh, Echo Sports Desk point of view before we hear in full from former head physio Dave Galley about that incident in the halftime changing room as well as what he's up to these days and bringing things forward to the current situation we find ourselves in as to when football could return and from his uh, professional perspective as a physio just how long players may need to return to competitive action. Well, that's it from myself, Guy Clark. My thanks to Dan Kay and to you also listening in. Thank you very much for your time and your company here on Blood Red. Until next time, though, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.